You can turn to John chapter 15. That's what we are. And uh, I'm actually going to start all over again, so to speak, uh, even though we're not uh, covering verses 1 through 11. Uh, that's the part of the context that we're in. And so uh, we're going to read it so that we understand what's going on in uh, 12 through 17. So uh, hear the word of our God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures by which we have been cleansed and by which we continue to be cleansed through the good news of the work of your eternal Son uh, to save us from sin. May his words abide in us even this morning, that we might bear much good and abiding fruit to the praise of your glorious grace, we ask. Amen. It's been one of those weird weeks for me, I guess, um, when you're probably uh, more aware than other weeks that a lot of Christians are not nice people. <laughs> you know, I was interacting with people online, and uh, there were a number of things that were going on, and I just was struck by how hard it is sometimes to love these people. 
And of course, that reminds me that I can sometimes be a difficult person to love. I, too, can be a jerk. I know some of you don't believe that. <laughs> um, I think this has a lot to say to that reality that we experience on a fairly regular basis far more often than we want to experience. Our big idea this morning is that Christ helps us to bear the fruit of love through prayer. Um, let's remember that the context of, of what's going on in this part of John 15 is the, that idea of what is a genuine disciple of Christ? Uh, how is it that we who have been saved by Christ are to live in light of that? Uh, this is not about how we enter into his kingdom, but how we live while we're in his kingdom because we're in his kingdom. And so the first thing that I want us to consider is that genuine disciples love one another. Jesus spoke already of keeping his commandments, so we say in verse 11, that our joy may be full. And so part of what I didn't have time to say last week and most of you are probably going, I'm glad he didn't say it last week because it was a long sermon, uh, was that the background, I believe, of what's going on here in John 15 is what we find in Deuteronomy. Okay, And what we find in Deuteronomy is not how people are to be saved, but how they are those who had been delivered, been redeemed through the Exodus, are to live in God's land Okay, And if they failed to live that way, then they would be removed from the land. And so we see sort of that context of the branches that don't bear fruit are clipped off and removed. So again, we're talking about the visible church. How is the visible church supposed to, to live? And all of that, how it kind of plays out. And so when we walk in obedience, uh, we experience the joy that Jesus had because Jesus rejoiced in obeying his father. He took great joy in being a faithful son for our salvation. And so we who have been united to him, when, when we are walking in obedience, experience his joy. He wants, his, he wants it to overflow in our lives. Okay, Which leads me to that idea of where are you seeking your joy? We all seek joy. Every day, almost every minute of the day, all of our decisions are basically come down to what will bring us the most joy. And so what Jesus wants us to understand is that the place where we will have the greatest and most abiding joy is Him and obedience to Him. And so this is, this is not just about, you know, this is not a call to grin and bear it for Jesus, but this is, in a sense, a call to find the greatest, most abiding joy that you can possibly find in Christ. So, with that being said, let's go to our actual text for this morning instead of borrowing from last week's text. He narrows this down, for he says, This is my commandment, 
that you love one another. And it continues a little bit, but we'll get there in a few moments. And what we see is the command to love one another brackets this section. We find it in verse 11, and we find it again in verse 17. It's the bookends to all of this. And so everything that we find in between is connected to this command to love one another as his disciples. Why does he have to say this? In part, precisely because loving one another can be so difficult. Because even though we are Christians, we will struggle with pride and we will struggle with many sins. There are times when I want to grab my brothers in Christ and I want to say, don't you believe Simil Eustace et peccator. Don't you believe that we're at the same time just and sinners? Don't you believe your theology? Because sometimes Christians act as if we're not still sinners. As though somehow we have gone and become perfected or something. And we haven't, brothers and sisters. Positionally, we are saved, but we are just, we are righteous because of the work of Christ. But His work is not done in us until we reach glory, and so we still struggle with sin in all kinds of forms. And yours is different than mine, and that's okay. Yours is worse than mine, obviously. Okay? No, not really. Oftentimes, mine is worse than yours. Okay? Depends on the day. That makes it hard for us to love one another. Okay? Because it's hard to love someone when they're being a jerk. It's hard to love someone when they're being arrogant, when they're being less than compassionate and kind, and it's really hard to love them when you are being a jerk, when you are being less than compassionate, kind, and gracious. And so Jesus continues that command with this additional aspect to it. Love one another as I have loved you. Because Jesus loved us when we were helpless, when we were sinners, when we were his enemies. And so in the same way we love each other, even though that other person is helpless and a sinner and sometimes acting like my enemy, I'm still supposed to love them. Man, that sounds like bad news some days. (laughs) Because of the sin in my heart, I don't want to love them when they're acting that way. I want to be done with them when they're acting that way. This command that Jesus gives to love is a love that overlooks, to a degree anyway, their unworthiness. It does not deny the need for church discipline and rebuke and admonishment. But it doesn't, it doesn't exclude, perhaps is the better word that I'm looking for. This love that Jesus had for us is intended to help us love other people. We see that John builds on this again in in 1 John chapter 3. We see in verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so 
What John understood from this and what he began to teach when he wrote as an apostle was that Jesus' love for us is intended to be our pattern for how we love other people. And of course, not just the pattern, but we receive the power from him as we are joined to him who is the living vine. We talk about salvation by justification by faith, but let's remember what Luther said, because I think he's right. Not only did he say at the same time, just and sinner, but he also said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Meaning that true faith is going to be accompanied and followed by something. The good works. The good works are not the... Um, reason we are saved. They do not produce our salvation, but they accompany salvation. They follow behind it as evidence of salvation. Because as much as Martin Luther at some times was struggling with the epistle of James, which at one point he called the epistle of straw, he eventually realized that what James says in chapter 2 is utterly true. His statement is a reflection of what we find in verse 17. So also, by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so, a true, lively, saving faith is one that is going to produce good works, and one of the main ones is loving one another. And so this love is one that focuses not on me, but on the neediness of the other person and seeks to meet that neediness according to its resources or my resources. We'll use me as the example just because I don't, you know, I'm me. Okay, and so for you, it's you're looking at the neediness of others in light of your resources and capacity to help them. Okay, okay. One of the things that I mentioned in my pastoral prayer uh, was the McMahons and their connection with uh, the Jacob Project, and, and that's what it is. It's, it's about loving one another. It's about recognizing their poverty, and instead of giving them money, trying to give them a home business so that they can provide for themselves, become financially independent, and then beginning to contribute to the ministry of the church financially, okay? That's a good picture, I think, of what it's meant to look like. Why is love so important to Jesus that he would continue to bring it up here in in chapter 13? We saw it. We saw it chapter 14. We see it now. Why is it so important to him? And let's go back again to that truth that we find that he is the God of love and we have been made in his image and we were made to love but sin has done its dangerous work within us and turned us as Luther and others have said curved inward so that instead of loving other people we love ourselves and so part of what the gospel does it's is get us away from gazing at our navel and talking about how great I am to looking at the world so I can begin to love 
my brothers and sisters in Christ. Say so That's part of what the gospel begins to produce, setting us free from the slavery, not just of sin, but of selfishness, which is a, force, uh, a form of sin, Okay, away from the pride which makes us the center of the universe, such that we begin to love one another. As I mentioned briefly, this capacity to love one another only comes through the one who loved us when we were unlovely, the one who has joined us to himself, Jesus, who, full of love, is able to, enable, is able to help us love one another. And so, joined to Jesus, who is the true vine, genuine disciples are empowered to love one another. Secondly, let us consider this, that, that Christ loves us as a true friend. Jesus clarifies what it means to love one another as I have loved you when he says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Now, let's stop for a second. Jesus considered them his friends. Okay, That is probably more profound then we stop and think about. They were his disciples. They were on a different levels. <laughs> Him the rabbi, them the disciples, and part of what it meant to be a disciple was to basically pledge, uh, pledge um, complete allegiance to the rabbi. What he says, you do. Jesus is changing the dynamic of their relationship to a degree anyway. We'll explore this in a little bit. But he considered them friends, and he would secondarily love them precisely by laying his life down for them. He's not calling you and I to do anything he hasn't already done for you and laying down his life. As we saw earlier, the word for life here is uh, not bios or zoe, but it's soul. And so it's not speaking simply of dying, although it includes that, uh, but it's more expansive than that to include any part of life. We could lay down any part of our lives for a brother and sister as they have need because Jesus has laid down everything because of our needs. Think of that for a few moments. That his whole incarnation, his coming in the flesh, was one of sacrifice. He left, so to speak, his privilege in heaven and took on the form of a man, and not just any man, but the form of a slave or servant, and lived a life of obedience and a life of inconvenience. Because, of course, he grew up in a poor part of the world, and he was poor. So Jesus lived with inconvenience. He lived with persecution, people who hated him and wanted him dead. We've seen that repeatedly throughout this. But he also lived one of service, of putting others before himself. 
And so, when we consider him laying this idea of laying down uh, a life for his friend, it goes beyond dying for a friend. Again, back to whatever that friend is is in need of that I can provide. That is something that I should be moved to provide. Let's get back to friendship. Jesus said that you are my friends if you obey me. It's kind of strange now, isn't it? If we hear that the wrong way, we can understand it wrongly as obedience, your obedience creates friendship with Jesus, and that's really not what's going on here. Okay? Uh, D.A. Carson notes that this obedience is not what makes them friends, it's what characterizes his friends. Okay? So uh, that means that we're not truly his friends if we continually disregard his will. Okay? You know, pattern of life, direction of life, if, if, if God is continually calling you in this direction and you're going in that direction, uh, then you get, am I really his friend? Or am I just playing a game? Okay? That's really kind of what's going on here. We, we need to remember as we, as we think about this that Jesus is not a peer to them, but he still stands in authority over them, and he still stands in authority over us. He, it's not like he's taken us into, as his friends and all the other relationships are obliterated, but he adds this to the relationships that he has with us. And so as we kind of think some of this through, what we see is that he has loved us, and because he loved us, we are now able to love him. And because we love him, we now begin to love other people. Right? If I love him and I want to obey him, then what that will produce in my life is a love for other people. Particularly in this context, his people. All right? But it all starts with his love for us, his laying down his life for us. Without his, without his death in our place, we are unable and unwilling to love anyone else as they should be loved. Jesus kind of continues this, explaining this for us, okay? I would no longer call you servants, or perhaps another better way to translate that would be slaves. Okay? That reminder that as disciples, they had a far inferior status to Jesus. He clarifies it further by saying that the servant does not know what his master is doing. A servant is one who is called to obey without question. Amy and I are slowly watching 12 years a slave. I say slowly because there's only so much of it we can take at a given point in time because it is, in many ways, a very brutal kind of movie to watch. It's so difficult to watch because of the brutality of slavery in the South. If any of you have any romanticized idea of what slavery was like in the American South, you need to start reading up. 
It was not a kind institution. It was often brutal and horrific. But one thing that is clear is that you obeyed your master without question. It didn't matter if what your master said was dumb. You had to do it or suffer the consequences. So Jesus is shifting their understanding of who they are in relationship to him. He's not removing this idea of uh, Jesus' authority, but rather what we see is, is a part of the change of the dynamic is knowing what's going on. The slave is of no explanation for why the master wants anything done, and that's where Jesus goes. He says that the servant does not know what his master is doing. And so, you as my friends, implication is, know what I'm doing. Okay? They know the master's plans. And so, our situation is probably more like what we see in Downton Abbey. Okay? I've got all the women back. Okay? I've got a couple of the men back. You just never know. Okay? I love my wife occasionally, and so I watch Downton Abbey with her. Okay? And what happens in Downton Abbey is you've got two different kinds of servants. They're the kind of the household servants who are mostly in the kitchen and they do the, the waiting at the tables, and, and they're sort of like slaves, for lack of a better term. They don't know the master's business, they've not been, been taken into the confidence of uh, the Lord and the lady and their daughters. But there are the ones like the, that, that dress the Lord and the lady and their daughters. And while they sit and are grooming and uh, dressing them, what happens is they inevitably come into their confidence. They share something of their lives with the servant. And so the servant becomes more than just a servant. Becomes something of a friend. Now, the that's why I say the authority is still there. They're still servants. Uh, you know, they still need to obey, but they have something, some confidence or knowledge uh, of the plans of the Lord, His lady, and their daughters. Jesus explains this as all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus has been disclosing everything he's heard from the Father to his disciples. Not just truth, but the plan and purpose. So Jesus didn't keep these things that he learned from the Father to himself, but he disclosed them particularly to his disciples. What I think is important as we consider friendship with God is that in the Old Testament, only two people were called his friend. Abraham and Moses. And why were they called his friends? Because he revealed his plans to them. We see um, Abraham called his friend in Isaiah 41, verse 8, But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. We see him called this again in James chapter 2. 
you see that faith was active among all his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, again, James is affirming justification by faith alone, but then also affirming that we are uh, we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And he, referring back to Abraham, was called a friend of God. We see as well Exodus 33, where it says in verse 11, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And so we see both in the life of Abraham and the life of Moses, God calling them his friends because he confides in them. When at the very beginning, right before the incidents with Sodom and Gomorrah, before God visits Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment, there's that little discussion that takes place. Shall we hide from Abraham what we are about to do? And they don't. And so we have that great passage where Abraham is debating with God, so to speak. How many righteous men need to be there that you might save the city? Because he's revealed that he's going to destroy it. And so he, he gets God down, so to speak, with a number of righteous men, and even that is too, too many, for the city will be destroyed. But because of Abraham, God delivers Lot and his family. Okay. We see Moses at the burning bush where, where God tells him to go back because he's going to set his people free from their slavery in Egypt. So Moses repeatedly receiving God's plan, what, what God is up to and what he's doing. Okay. We also see Job. Not called the friend of God, but we see this in verse 29, uh, sorry, chapter 29, verse 4. As I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent. And the blessing of God was upon his tent, he talks about. And so he described these many blessings, in a sense, as his friendship with God. Now for us, we recognize that in Scripture, God has progressively revealed his plans for the church to us. We have it. It's right here. Okay? Why do we have this? Deuteronomy 29.29. Calvin's favorite verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are things that you are not going to know because they belong to God. Okay? But... It continues, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of his law. He reveals these things to us, brings us into his confidence so that we may walk not just as redeemed people, but also increasingly obedient people. The grace of God is not opposed to obedience. It is the grace of God, that Paul says in Titus, that teaches us to say no to unrighteousness. So, 
So if, if friendship from this passage is understood as confiding in someone and sacrificially serving one another, I wonder who is your friend? Who do you confide in? Who do you share your heart with? Who do you let in to the innermost chambers of who you are? If you're married, one of those people ought to be your spouse. But there ought to be other people too. Because we're talking about friendship here, not companionship. Not just hanging out, having a beer or dinner together and, and laughing a little bit. But who do you let in? Who knows you as you really are, not as you kind of pretend to be? If you don't have someone like that, you are ripe for a fall. With all of these scandals that are kind of going on, who are the people that are falling into them? They're the ones who have excluded people from their hearts so that no one knows what's going on and therefore can't help them before they fall into the ditch. What you want is a friend who will keep you from falling into the ditch. Who will do everything they possibly can to keep you from that hole. That is what we need. So Jesus, our truest friend who gives us other friends, loved us so that we can love one another as true friends. Our third thing our shortest part of this is that Jesus chose his people to bear fruit through prayer. Okay, now hearing that you are a friend of God might pump you up with pride. And so Jesus here tries to remove all that boasting that, you know, some people somehow turn the grace of God into a thing of boasting. And that is so contrary to scriptural truth which seeks to remove from us all cause of boasting so that we boast only in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. Okay? And so Jesus reminds his disciples right here, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It was grace. Unmerited favor. Okay? R.C. Sproul tells uh, one story, and I can't remember where he tells it. But he, of course, his favorite golfer, R.C. loves golf. His favorite golfer was Arnold Palmer. And so, uh, you know, I'm not sure where he stood in terms of Jesus. I mean, he, he was below Jesus, but I'm not sure. It might have been close. Okay, his adoration of Arnold Palmer. And when he and Vesta would travel the country, they would often stay at the resorts. This is when R.C. could play golf. He can't play golf anymore. It's been a long time since he could play golf. But they would stay at the resorts, a lot of the golf resorts, and they were staying at one, and I, I think Palmer owned it, if I remember the story correctly, but I may be wrong. And so they went for dinner at the clubhouse, you know, the restaurant that was there, and it was a very quiet night. There was almost nobody in the clubhouse that night. And so, you know, here, you know, R.C. Investor are in a little corner having their dinner together, and in comes a, a, a larger party, and it's Palmer and his family. And they're going to celebrate his birthday. 
And the waiter comes over and says, Mr. Palmer would like to invite you to his table. He didn't know R.C., but he brought him into a privileged position, okay? That's what our salvation is like. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's not because of how great you are. It's because of the kindness and goodness of Jesus that we are brought near and that we are called his friends, not because you're such a great friend. Okay? But here's the purpose. He says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And now, of course, the immediate application of, or immediate meaning of this is the, the disciples who are about to become apostles, but it's also true for us by extension. You were called and appointed to bear fruit, abiding fruit. So he alludes back to this metaphor of the vine, that they should be fruitful branches that are joined to him. And this is in keeping with all of the scriptures with regard to salvation. Genesis 17, for instance, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, that was before his name was changed to Abraham, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So he's reminding Abraham of who he is and how basically he has called him, but there's a purpose to his calling him, that you may walk blamelessly before me. We see it as well in Ephesians 1, verse 4. For he chose us in him, referring to Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Okay, I chose you. Election right there in Ephesians 1. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Just like it talked about with Abraham. Okay, so... This statement of Jesus' here is consistent with what we find at the beginning and at the end of the Scriptures. Jesus anticipates lasting fruit, not like the buds I talked to you about last week on our citrus tree in Florida, where we would get the buds and they would never produce fruit, and actually it was our fault because we didn't water the tree. Um, But that's not what's going to happen if we're united to Jesus. Okay? He anticipates this abiding, lasting sort of fruit, uh, not a flash in the pan. And he says to them, to encourage them, whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. So last week we talked about how whatever we ask Jesus according to his will, okay? This time he talks about the Father. We ask the Father. And so we see that they're not opposed to each other. They're working together, okay? so to speak, um, with the Spirit so that we will bear fruit for their glory. And so again, we see that we are to pray specifically according to His will. And what I think we ought to keep in mind as we consider that is the context here, that we would pray that we would bear fruit as we remain in Him. Okay? As we 
think about our communion. Last week we talked about the difference between union and communion. Our union doesn't change, but our, con- our communion is more dynamic. And so as we think about people when they fall into grievous sin, what's happened is they've neglected their communion with Christ. They are not as close to Him as they possibly, as they could be at that point in time. And so they're not drawing, therefore, on the resources that are available to us in Christ Jesus. And therefore, they are more vulnerable to temptation. They've begun to, they've begun to live a more self-sufficient life as opposed to a Christ-dependent life. And they're ripe for the fall. Prayer is the cry of the dependent heart that recognizes without you, I can do nothing. Without you, I'm the guy who's going to fall into the ditch. Help me, Jesus. Okay? It's expressing our dependence upon the vine so that we might bear fruit. And he ties this back in to love. All of this happens so that we would love one another. So the abiding and the praying is intended so that we begin the loving. We we won't be loving unless we're praying. Unless we recognize our utter dependence upon Him to love another human being besides ourselves. Probably may feel like I dropped out five bombs on you today. But this is meant to be good news. (laughs) I hope it made it sound good. As the Father looks at our lives, the main fruit that the God of love is looking for is love. And love for Him is revealed by love for one another. And this fruit is produced as we remain in Him and as we pray to Him for help. And so what happens is that we will grow in true friendship as it has been revealed by Jesus. We will confide in Him and in one another. We will open up our hearts and lives to Him and to one another and serve one another as we are able to meet needs. This is too great for us. Again, because without Him, we can do nothing. Especially this. But if we remain in Him... This will happen among us. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, on the one hand, I think we really get excited about the call to love one another because we were made for that. And so there's some, there ought to be something in us because of the image of God that, that, that goes, yes, yes, yes. And yet, Father, because we're still have indwelling sin. We find it so hard. And we can feel crushed and defeated because we fail. Keep calling us back to the one who loved us and gave himself for us, who bore the curse for our disobedience. 
but also empower us to take those steps of love. Help us to do this. Without you, we can't. And so I I pray for this congregation that you would uh, be working in us to help us love even more than we already do. That you might receive praise for the fruit that you produce in us and through us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.